Hello, this is Robert Rickover at Body Learning, and today my guest is Terry Fitzgerald, who is an Alexander Technique teacher in Sydney, Australia. He's been teaching the technique for over 30 years, and he is also, uh, and he is the director of the Sydney Alexander School, which is a teacher training uh, program in Sydney. In addition, Terry has a, a doctorate in education from the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia, and he works there uh, part-time. And we're going to talk today about the connections between the Alexander Technique and perhaps uh, FM Alexander's discoveries more generally and the field of education. Uh, Terry, welcome to the program. Thank you, Robert. Good morning. Good, good morning. Well, it's evening here. But <laughs> right. That's the way it works. Um, I'd like to begin by just reading a quote um, of a man named John Dewey, who we're, we're going to probably talk about at some length in a separate interview. Uh, but John Dewey, uh, just briefly, was a, a major a figure in American education, certainly in the first half of the 20th century, and a long-time student of Alexander's, also probably America's most famous philosopher. And he wrote uh, it, and by it he meant the, the technique of Mr. Alexander, bears the same relation to education that education itself bears to all other human activities. Uh, Terry, what do you make of that quote? And could you perhaps elaborate on it a little bit? I do like the quote. Um, I think it may be stretching it a little bit far, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice, pithy way of uh, acknowledging the Alexander Technique. Uh, needs to be remembered that Dewey wrote that some 70 years ago. Mm -hmm. So uh, educational theory may have moved on a bit, and I'm not sure how many of the top-ranking educators in the, well, in the developed world would have even heard of Alexander. Um, Dewey is starting to make a bit more of a comeback, I'm finding. Uh, but uh, it may be stretching it, but... It, why not? Mm -hmm. I think. Uh, so I, I quote it myself quite a lot. Right. Um, well, maybe uh, maybe we should just back up a second here, and 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 if you wouldn't mind providing a very short description or definition of the Alexander technique, so our audience knows what it is we're talking about. My sort of three sentence explanation is to say the Alexander Technique is a way of learning how to deal with the habits that affect the way we move. Um, we are learning to change those habits by recognizing them to begin with, interrupting them when we can, and giving ourselves another way of thinking that focuses on the balance of the head on top of the spine, and when the head on, and spine are in their best relationship, there's a range of things that happen uh, almost at the level of reflex. We spring up, we open up, we expand, we breathe better, we uh, take the pressure off our joints and generally feel more comfortable. Uh, 
So that is my dinner party version. Right. Obviously, uh, there are more technical definitions than that. Right. And so I guess the obvious question then for our, our listener might have, that sounds great if you want to improve your posture or physical coordination, but how does how can that be helpful for education, the educational process generally? It's in the area of habit, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Most educators won't care too much about their postural coordination when they're standing in front of a classroom, uh, although they may need to make an impression on some of their students. But if they understand the nature of habit, then uh, like any good educator should, or any teacher really, they'll be understanding how the, the students habitually learn, how the teachers habitually teach, and recognizing that those habits may or may not be the best ones for a particular set of circumstances and be willing to change them. So to my mind, uh, it's in the domain of habit, a recognition of habit, that we can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Alexander Technique can make a big difference, even if it's um, in a, uh, not as overt as we would like it to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that people are recognizing this in certain therapeutic domains. They're, they're working in similar areas of changing habit. And it would be interesting to do some research on how much Alexander has influenced those sort of psychotherapeutic domains over the years and then how that then influences education generally. Mm-hmm. So and someone listening to this who might be a teacher or a school administrator or teacher of education, uh, what what would you suggest they do if they want to explore Alexander's ideas and the Alexander technique I mean would you suggest they have lessons in it and if so how what would be the payoff in terms of their 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 ability to be effective educators lessons would be good for everybody I'd say but it depends on their priorities if they are not necessarily concerned about their own uh, postural coordination or, or balance even. Um, they may be just perfectly comfortable the way they are. but So they may need to go and look at some theory books. Um, there are some people these days writing about the Alexander Technique a little bit more theoretically, philosophically. Richard Schusterman is one of those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so even the John Dewey Society has written a piece recently about Alexander Technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least Alexander's contribution to John Dewey. So there are some philosophical areas where the, uh, those sorts of thinkers could go. And otherwise, I'd recommend they explore the Alexander Technique by having a couple, at least a couple of private lessons with a good teacher so they can have that explanation turned into practice in terms of their own movement coordination and understanding of how, how we think, either think habitually as well as we move habitually. And and what do you see as the Al- Alexander or the Alexander's technique techniques contribution to our understanding of habits generally? Well, habits are good things. I think habits help us survive. If we didn't have any habits, we wouldn't cross the road safely. We learn these habits. Let's say crossing the road at age two or three. 
and we apply it so we get to adulthood and we can cross the road quite nicely. We could be daydreaming, we could be talking to somebody and we'll invariably stop by the sidewalk, look one way, look the other way and walk across the road and arrive safely on the other side quite habitually. Now, that's a learned habit and that was something we learned uh, with our parents probably at age two or three, even if we had to be scolded slightly to stop by the sidewalk and look. Now, in Australia, we look to the right, then we look to the left and walk across the road. In the United States, you look presumably to the left and then to the right and then walk across the road. So we in Australia have learned a habit as children to look to the right, look to the left. And this is a very useful habit, a handy one to have uh, until we go to America and then we nearly get run over by a bus somewhere in New York because we're looking the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So we have to stop and pay attention and remember what our parents told us. But they said, look to the right, look to the left. I've got to now say, stop, look the other way, look to my left, look to the right when I'm in America and I'll cross the road. So after a couple of weeks of new habit forming, I may be safe enough to cross the road without having to think too much about it in New York. So habits are good. Um, And most of what we learnt habitually in terms of our coordination and movement happened for a reason. So we can't disparage those habits until they get in the way and cause us some distress. Maybe those habits or have developed from occupational conditions or recovery from accidents and injuries. After a while, we're wondering why our necks and backs are aching and we can stop and think, well, maybe because of the habits I learnt, unconsciously, of course, and for good reason, sometime in my past, and now's the time to metaphorically stop on the sidewalk and change the the direction I look before I cross the road. Uh, So that's how I think of habits broadly, and habits the way we learn habits at school, teachers teach us teaching habits, their, their own teaching habits become part of our learning patterns unconsciously. And so a good educator will be able to interrupt, teach the students how to stop, pay attention, look the other way, uh, even in elementary educational areas. Um, So that's how I would apply it more broadly to education. If we think of education being in a classroom style teaching, Mm -hmm. but of course education is much more complex than that. Right. So, I mean, do you see the the main a major benefit then for educators to simply be aware of the process of habit formation and how it can affect how ways in which a student approaches a, a, a learning process? Yes, very much. Um, educators will be doing that these days. In theory, at least, people are looking at learning styles, teaching styles. Styles could be another word for habit. Uh, These meaning the things we're doing less than consciously. Uh, So once we can become aware of our learning style or our teaching style, we can either embrace it and use it quite powerfully or we could interrupt it and develop new styles so that we can learn new things uh, better or more interestingly, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So sometimes a teacher would interrupt a, t- uh, a pupil's teaching style on purpose, a learning style rather, uh, mm-hmm. on purpose so that they can learn 
different things in different ways. I think a good teacher would necessarily do that. And so do you think that some exposure to the, the Alexander technique or to Alexander's ideas would make it more likely that a teacher would be sensitive to those issues and would perhaps be more willing to uh, adapt uh, his or her teaching style, recognizing that maybe that style isn't right for this group of students? Well, that's been my experience myself, mm-hmm. um, but I've met many teachers, professors, academics in, at a university level these days who will probably never have even heard of the technique. Or they, if they have, they've not had lessons, yet they understand that principle mm-hmm. of, of teaching styles and learning styles. I don't think there's, I don't think the Alexander technique has monopoly on that. Concept. No, but but on the other hand, um, most teachings today is still done in person, I guess, or a lot of teaching is done in person, and so the way in which a teacher um, holds him or herself, uh, maintains their posture and how they move, probably has some relation to their teaching style or to the way students perceive them. That that could be a factor, right? Oh, I believe I agree with that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, last semester at the university, where I sometimes do some casual teaching, I was doing distance education, mm-hmm. so I never saw my students. We were communicating by computer, by email, for a whole semester. Some of them were in far distant countries, so uh, they wouldn't have seen me. They wouldn't have possibly not even seen my face. Uh, so I can only presume that how I sat at my my computer would have influenced my communication style, but I can't prove that. It'd be fun to think so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, is there is there anything else that you would like to say on this general topic? Uh, maybe addressing educators or people in that field that would motivate them to, if they haven't heard of the Alexander Technique or F. Matthias Alexander, to do a little reading or perhaps even take a lesson or two? Anything else that you can think of that we haven't touched upon? Yes. I would encourage people to investigate John Dewey more. Um, Certainly in Australia, he's becoming rather better known. Uh, the United States, of course, he's one of the champions. Uh, Australian education, I think, has largely been influenced through the British uh, feedback. So um, even there, uh, John Dewey's becoming better known, and his relationship with Alexander deserves to be understood. When I say relationship, Alexander taught John Dewey from about 1916 for quite a number of years, they were firm friends, uh, and John Dewey's writings after that time often acknowledge Alexander's contribution to them. And John Dewey himself wrote the forewords to three of Alexander's books. Mm-hmm. So there's a profound interaction there, and even though people may not have heard of Alexander, if they study Dewey, Dewey's works post-1916, you'll be able to pick up a lot of what Alexander was trying to get at uh, as you embrace John Dewey. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So that's a way in, I think, for in the education area. Mm-hmm. They may not have heard of Alexander and he may not have the academic capital to for a lot of uh, academic start types, but John Dewey does. So I'll encu- I always encourage people to read John Dewey as much as they can. Right. And it's interesting, I believe it was John Dewey's second wife who was interviewed sometime after he died, I believe by Frank Pierce Jones, and she said that he always maintained that one of the, apart from sort of the physical health benefits that he he achieved from his lessons with Alexander, that one of the things that he noticed was that after having had exposure to the technique, he was he found he was able to engage in discussions without the need to um, I'm trying to remember how she put it, but without the need to uh, grab on to previous ideas and hold them no matter what. I, I think what she was saying is he, he was sort of more open-minded. He was able to engage in a dialogue with people and perhaps allow his mind to be changed by new information more easily than had been the case before. And that, to me, apart from its sort of the usefulness of it on its own, it seems to me that would be a pretty useful quality for a teacher to have in general. Yes, I agree with that. I think it could be a useful quality for Alexander teachers to have in general. Well, that's, that's, that's a whole other interview, Terry. We're not going to go there today. Uh, <laughs> but yes, I agree. Actually, I, I, I should look that quote up. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one to me because it, it kind of is a way of – I mean, you know, I think most people who hear something of the Alexander Technique think, well, that might be nice if I want to improve my posture, but I think my posture is just fine. And they don't perhaps consider that there are some definite spillovers into how they – think and reason and uh, come to come to conclusions about ideas that maybe that's a, a not quite obvious to people who haven't had some direct experience with the work that yes i agree with that and when people do come with that level of interest the lessons are very different from the people who might be coming just to deal with um, particular physical problems Mm-hmm. So there's a, a another layer of a conversation that occurs when people are looking for that sort of information mm-hmm. and using that using the technique to develop that way of thinking in, for themselves. Well, this might be a good note on which to to end our discussion. Um, my guest today has been Dr. Terry Fitzgerald, uh, who uh, is the an Alexander Technique teacher in Sydney, Australia. He's also the director of the Sydney Alexander School, an Alexander teacher training uh, center. He also has a doctorate in education from the University of Technology in Sydney. And if anything that we've been talking about uh, uh, interests you, certainly if you live in Sydney, Uh, give Terry a a call. We'll put a link to his website by the interview. And more generally, if what we've been talking about intrigues you, uh, 
and certainly if you're an educator, um, this might be a very useful thing for you to, to explore. Terry, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're very welcome, Robert. Thank you.